This is the Darcy Giroux Podcast, episode 38. Today, my guest is Josh Andrus, Executive Director at Project Confederation. We're going to be talking about the election in Alberta. Josh Andrus, welcome back to the Darcy Jarrell podcast. How are things? Good, good. Happy to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to have you back as um, as an authority on our current Alberta election. I wanted to put out some material uh, on this before the election was over, so I think we might just be able to squeak this in under the wire. Um, first of all... You've been on the show before, but give us a quick uh, introduction of yourself and your organization. Yeah, so my name is Josh Anders. I'm the executive director of Project Confederation. I'm also currently, uh, with the help of Peter McCaffrey, uh, running the Free Alberta Strategy. Um, the, the Both of them overlap uh, in a key policy area, and that's Alberta and the West uh, relationship with Ottawa and the federal government and, and the impact that federal government policies have on everyday Albertans and, and different things that the, the provincial government can do to defend Alberta's interests. I mean, over the past eight years, the Liberal government has brought in a series of uh, policies that are designed to phase out uh, or to move go- environmental goalposts with the eventual uh, goal of dismantling Alberta's energy industry and Western Canada's energy industry. So, um, Project Confederation was kind of born out of Western alienation. Like, this is nothing new. It's been going on since, you know, Alberta became a province in 1905. So it's one of those things where we decided that, uh, instead of forming a political party, we, we kind of create some kind of a political think tank where we come up with policy recommendations and ideas. And then we're not muddied down in the waters of, of what poll numbers say and what uh what 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 we think is popular at the time because our objective is not to be within the Overton window it's to move the window of what is politically possible so that's that's the idea there yeah yeah perfect and you guys have had um some success too i mean you guys have had a lot of influence and you've had uh, uh some of your policy recommendations taken up by by uh different people can you share a few of the big the big wins you've had well, the big win, uh, the first big win we had was shortly after we launched in October of 2019. Uh, it was about a month later. Uh, Jason Kenney came out and announced that he was going to be, uh, they'd be bringing in the fair deal panel, which consisted of a, of a series of, uh, policy experts and, uh, other community leaders that came together and listened to Albertans' voices. Uh, we had previously launched uh, a new Alberta agenda in in October of that year, which outlined nine different policy objectives we felt the provincial government should undertake. I think eight out of the nine made it in the Fair Deal panel's uh, final report. We organized speakers. We did a really good job of uh, putting out good information that people could then articulate uh, to the panelists. Um, the big one uh, recently, though, we've had a few others, but the big one recently has was the uh, passing and uh, implement, uh, it hasn't been used yet, but the implement, uh, passing of the Alberta Sovereignty Act within the United Canada. Uh, the objective of that is to give the federal, provincial government uh, tools if the federal government comes in with some kind of a just transition where they are transitioning energy workers out of jobs altogether. So it's just another policy tool that we have. We find that our success comes from 
you know, we, we try to be principled, we try to be measured and we try to be, you know, intellectual and academic in our approach. And if we can continue to do that, we can continue pumping out good policy ideas and we can continue to be influential that way. This isn't about personality. This isn't about one person. This is about a movement and, 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 a, and a collection of ideas that, that we feel can be beneficial to the people of Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And Western on. Canada. For that yeah. Matter. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Now, now I don't want to gloss over, uh, the, the giant elephant in the room here. But uh, you had committed to showing up at our capitalism and morality event and, <laughs> and had a change of plans at the last minute. Uh, not, to, not to lay that on you here. Uh, Sorry only, about that. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm only bringing it up to say that we, that we did miss you. And, uh, and I think you missed a, what ended up being a really good time. It lo- it sounded like it was a really good time. It sounded like there was a lot of informative speakers and stuff like that. So I really I'm sorry I couldn't make it. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was a good time, and and uh, yeah, was just hoping to uh, to have you there, and and if nothing else, have a have another visit with you. Um, but I appreciate you making time to do this for sure. So first of all, let's let's talk about your. Of course, we're in the middle of the election. I want to get into that, but let's talk about. Um, this uh, Can't Stop Alberta tour that you guys put on. I think the timing was important as we were getting into this this Im- very important election cycle. Um, I, I'm using the term very important election cycle in uh, quotation marks if nobody, because <laughs> the listeners can't see me. <laughs> but tell us about the Can't Stop Alberta tour. Yeah, so the idea was we got together with Alberta Proud, which is another uh, advocacy group that supports uh, energy in Alberta, um, run by Lindsay Wilson. Um, we decided that uh, what we would do is we would pick, we would go to a few places across the province and just sit down and have discussions about the issues that we thought were going to be important during the election campaign. Uh, things like affordability, things like crime and education. So we had a, a vast number of speakers uh, come and speak at our events. We did a couple panels. Um, the key issues, uh, like I said, obviously were affordability um, and what the federal government has done to uh, make the affordability crisis worse and, and different policies that we felt the provincial government could seek to try and try and make uh True changes to the way this country is governed. So provincial, uh, governments have the tools they need to deal with, uh, made in their province problems. Um, so that was, that was the idea there. Um, yeah, we went to six, uh, six different cities. We had good turnout everywhere we went, really engaged audience, uh, really good intellectual academic speakers that could talk to you, talk about issues. It wasn't much of a raw, raw type of a thing. Uh, we wanted to set the tone though. We wanted to, to make it clear that these were the issues that, uh, were going to be talked about on the campaign trail and to give everybody kind of a preview of what we thought. We've seen a lot of the, the, talking points and stuff we've used become talking points during the election. So I think it definitely did have a very good impact in really setting the, the policy agenda for the election. Okay. Yeah. Right on. So one of the big things of course is affordability. Um, we've been suffering through this uh, inflation crisis, which is slowing down a bit now, but, but the, I mean, we've all felt the effects of that. So on affordability, let's let's first talk about some of the policies in place right now that have caused the problem. Give us your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, this is uh, this is a big one, and it's it really is a three pronged affordability crisis. Uh, first off, you have uh, monetary policy, which uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was on record during an election campaign saying he doesn't think about, and it definitely shows. Monetary policy may not be controlled by the federal government, but I'll get into the impact of fiscal policy and how it ties in here. But monetary policy is the concept of money is just a commodity like anything else, like oil, copper, gold. And when you increase the amount of any commodity in the system, the value of each individual unit of that commodity decreases. And when it comes to money, if you increase the amount of money in the system, it decreases the purchasing power of each individual unit. You end up with a scenario where you have too much money chasing a scarce amount of goods, driving prices up. That's a big cause of what we've seen. But in order to deal with that, in order to make money more expensive, central banks try and control the base rate of um interest rates in order to try and bring inflation down. So what we've seen over the past two years is is central banks around the world increase uh, interest rates uh, at a rel- relatively rapid pace uh, comparatively to the last decade in order to try and get inflation under control. However, their efforts have been hampered by government policy in, in a number of ways. Uh, the, the big one in, in Canada, at least, is fiscal policy. And, and even in the United States, they're having a conversation about the debt ceiling right now. But when you get into a situation where a government is spending money out of control, I mean, the last liberal budget, the federal government announced $70 billion in new spending. That's not going to help when you put more money into the system. So it creates a, a concept called fiscal dominance, where central banks are forced to raise more than they would be comfortable with in another setting, which puts pressure on the financial system, as we've seen in the States with uh, the bank failing of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and others. Uh that's one of the issues in Alberta over the past few years. We've had a relatively fiscally responsible government, and there were a couple of budgets there that Kenny kind of blew out of the water. But uh, to, by the time they were uh, heading into uh, the last couple of years here, they've they've actually been very good at, at being fiscally responsible, which is, keeps inflation in line. And Alberta's rate of inflation is typically about a, a point and a half lower than everywhere else. So. That's an, a net benefit. But the big one, uh, more so than fiscal policy and fiscal dominance, is energy policy and the complex regulatory regimes brought forward by the federal government that limit our ability to produce affordable amounts, affordable energy for our people. Um, policies like that, uh, if you think about it this way, energy is the industry that powers every other industry. If you have affordable energy, you have the ability to um, increase investment in your business sector to hire people to run your your manufacturing plant at a, at a at a reasonable rate to transport your product from the manufacturing line to the grocery store and keep the lights on at the grocery store so it's it impacts every level of the production cycle for every good that you buy and what we have is is a federal government that has wanted to phase out affordable uh, fossil fuel energy for the past decade um they have brought in an impact assessment act which was a uh, more commonly known as Bill C-69 or the No More Pipelines Law. It is one of the most obvious examples of this. It was passed by the Liberals in 2018. And what it does is it gives them full authority to effectively uh, override any project development permit in any province uh, based on environmental grounds. They have brought in a carbon tax, which taxes the production cycle at every level because it taxes energy at its baseline. They've committed to... uh, meeting very dramatic net zero emissions targets, which effectively because of the level of technology that we have, isn't capable of, of 
of meeting these targets without cutting production effectively means that the emissions cap is a de facto production cap, which neither the Liberals nor the provincial NDP seem to want to admit. And then you've got the electricity grid. Um, previously, uh, the electricity grid, one, the government of Alberta and the government of Canada wanted to see emissions targets, uh, net zero electricity grid by 2050. Uh, over the last year, they have moved that up 15 full years to 2035. That's going to be costly, that extra 15 years, if you think about it. I mean, if it's, we don't have the technology, technological development to be moving this fast, which means that energy costs are going to go up. And, and, and just the infrastructure alone on, on transitioning Alberta's energy or electricity grid to net zero by 2035, it's going to cost taxpayers $52 billion, according to a report by our own Alberta Electric Systems Operator, or better known as ASO. So we have a whole bunch of these policies that are coming in that are going to deeply impact the affordability level, the ability of our governments to keep affordability in line. And it, it is a crisis and we, it impacts the lower class people much more than it does the, the, the upper class people. It leads to poverty. It leads to divorce. It leads to suicide. And, and it's something that we need to be absolutely concerned about as we head into the polls on Monday. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I guess one of the problems you guys face as a, as a think tank and, and with some of the work that you guys do is that not only are you, um, providing new, uh, policy, uh, recommendations, but you're also, you know, fighting back and, and sometimes treading, treading water, trying to stay alive with some of the stuff that they're pushing forward with. Is that an accurate statement? Um, I, I think just like in terms of being a think tank, we've actually shown that we can do things, which may, because we have credibility now, we have some, a certain degree of stability. Um, so regardless of what happens on May the 29th, uh, we'll still be here. We'll still be pushing. We have a, a very specific set of policies that's designed to prevent federal, uh, intrusion into the affairs of the province of Alberta. The last thing we want to do is be force fed a $52 billion electricity grid that actually drives electricity prices up. So we need, uh, we need to bring in policy ideas and, and, and continue to push for some of the ideas that we have pushed for, uh, to help deal with some of these issues. I mean, too much of our money leaves this province and is spent in other parts of the country through not just equalization, but almost every single, uh, federal program lavish spending social program that they have it's it's going to cost us more than it does anywhere else so yeah that that's the idea that's the objective and and if we can keep doing what we're doing we can keep moving the window slightly here there and uh, make true genuine uh sustained change uh to the way that the country works basically yeah yeah right on um okay so let's talk about then some of the policies that you guys are currently recommending that that you want people to have in mind when they go to the polls? So there's a few. Um, obviously, we need to ensure that our taxpayers are protected. Uh, the provincial government, uh, sorry, the, uh, the Alberta UCP has brought in uh, some policy ideas to, to fix spending levels at, at rate of inflation and population growth to um, make it impossible to raise taxes without a public referendum. Um, and, and, and these are, are contrasted by a lot of the things that the NDP have done. So this is just on fiscal policy, on energy policy, the UCP, um, really is kind of the final frontier. Um, the NDP for, for four years in government acted as a doormat for the federal government when the federal government 
um, sign or uh, when the federal government uh, for, uh, renewed the equalization formula in 2018, the Alberta NDP either didn't know or didn't care. Uh, they didn't say anything. And, and that's a deeply unpopular program, so deeply unpopular that when the United Conservative Party brought in a referendum to abolish equalization, they it passed with 62%. It comes down really, it's, it's, it, it is about specific policies, but it's more about the overall um, the goal of, of the government. And if the government is standing up and being strong, on whatever issue it is, whether it be pose, opposing the just transition or uh, taking the Impact Assessment Act to court like we have or or whatever policies, I'm sure the Sustainable Jobs Act, which is what the Liberals have rebranded the just transition, is going to to lead to court challenges. Well, will the NDP be standing up for the for the West? Will they be standing up for Alberta? I mean, I highly doubt it. When when the tanker ban was brought in in, uh, in 2017, I think it was. It, essentially banning all tankers off the coast of northern British Columbia, which obviously creates somewhat somewhat of a supply bottleneck. Uh, the NDP didn't say anything until after uh, the bill was passed into law. So it, it's, it is, it's, it's a nuanced difference. Um, but for most Albertans, I think they're sick and tired of the federal government dictating to them how to live their lives, uh, overriding provincial jurisdiction um, in, in various areas in, in a way to centralize control. And I, I do think that it's it is important for the federal or for the provincial government to uh, take a hard line against federal government, especially when they're bringing policies designed to uh, completely destroy our fundamental industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's take a let's take a closer look at the election itself. I I as as much as I enjoy politics. Um, I sometimes don't follow it that closely either. Um, obviously, uh, I think everyone knows my bias to parties on the right, perhaps, uh, if I can ever be convinced to get out and vote at all. I, I guess I want to have a better idea of, like, the NDP stuff. I haven't looked at it at all. I haven't looked at their platform. Um, you know, I have an idea in my head of the type of nonsense that's in there. But um, can you can you give us kind of an overview of what uh, kind of ideas they're putting forth in this election? Well, it's actually quite interesting. Um, I'm sure they remember the four years they were in government. Uh, Rachel Notley, for the last uh, month at least, has pretended to be a conservative. She has uh, former progressive conservative MLAs, which never supported the UCP. Uh, just thought I'd throw that in there. They're coming out in support of the NDP. They're trying to make it seem as if they're the Peter Lougheed conservative brand when four years ago, when they were in government, uh, they definitely weren't. I mean, we saw the largest, uh, I think our budget went from, or our debt, provincial debt went from 10.9 billion to 85 billion in four years. That is a massive amount of spending. It's making it, it almost bankrupted the province, uh, during COVID. Um, so we need to, so it's one of those things that that's what the NDP has been trying to do. They've been trying to take the edge off. However, their candidates have pre they're previously marched in communist rallies and things like that. So it hasn't been entirely clean on their side. Now, there have been a lot of unforced errors with the UCP, some controversial statements made by individuals. Um, I mean, I like to think that uh, if you're not being calm and measured during an election campaign, you need to shut your mouth. And some people didn't get that memo. So we've definitely seen some controversial um, incidents go on. But at the end of the day, it comes down to whether or not I, 
people buy this concept that Rachel Notley is all of a sudden a conservative. I don't think it's flying. I don't think it's selling. I do, I do know that they're polling higher than I would have thought they would. But at the same time, I know that in the 2019 elections, the polls were off by two to 10 points in some cases uh, in favor of the UCP. So I don't think it's as tight of a race as everybody else does. Um, I think that the UCP is in a good place and, it's one of those things where if the NDP was talking about all this uh, standing up to Ottawa stuff, I'd probably be singing a different tune. But when it comes to policy objectives, the UCP definitely has an edge, um, at least for, from from our vantage point. I think the frustration with Ottawa is definitely always going to be an undercurrent. It doesn't matter whether we're screaming about separation or it's a nice quiet day in July, right, where we're sitting at the golf course. There's always a, a certain degree of frustration towards the federal government. I think that's really going to be one of the main dividing features between the, the UCP and the NDP as we head into election day. Yeah, for sure. Well, it is absolutely terrifying that they allow candidates who openly advocate communism, um, to, you know, to participate as, as candidates in their party. I mean, that alone, um, should, should scare people in my opinion. And then, of course, uh, Daniel Smith and the UCP. I mean, it, uh, as a leader, I think she's, uh, ruffled feathers within the conservative movement a bit also. And, uh, definitely, definitely has, uh, triggered some people in on the left in Alberta and just about everybody in Ottawa. <laughs> so yeah, get, let, tell us a bit about, uh, the UCP platform and, and what they're offering the voters right now. Yeah, so I think a lot of the we'll call them unforced errors. It's it's a lot of its inexperience. Um, I mean, I was up the legislature back well a couple times, and you know, there's it's definitely a new experience. And whenever you, someone becomes a premier you're in such a position of power, I, I can't imagine there not being growing pains. Um, Danielle, uh, the NDP's taken a lot of things that she said on her show out of context. They've put it on billboards. They've put it on to to signs. Um, but at the end of the day, I think uh, they, they've been trying to paint her as almost like a radical, angry, uh, extreme, right-wing extremist. And, and and she's been really good this campaign of just remaining calm and measured and and taking a, a more rational approach to the way she does politics. And, and I think it's working out for her. I think uh, it, the conservatives, we were worried at, at a time that the conservatives were going to lose some seats in South Calgary. I think they're there, as long as she keeps this approach, I think she'll be fine. I mean, she's she's done really well uh, over the last couple of weeks here, just kind of maintaining composure. And and I think it's we're kind of voting on a continuation of what Danielle Smith brought to the table during her uh, first, we'll call it half or quarter, third of a term in office, where she did have a very strong uh stand up to Ottawa approach. She focused on energy development and and uh balancing the budget and keeping you know these these this just steady is the course but we're not going to let ottawa uh stomp on us i think is the way i would describe that and i i think that approach is going to work in the long run i really do um we've seen a lot of stuff like there's been a lot of noise but i think at the end of the day just her maintaining her composure has been a big big asset this this election campaign Right, right, sure. Well, I'll I'll go on the record and say all those uh, radical quotes of hers happen to be my favorite. 
Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, come on. When when she said, when, but when she's, they're trying to use like her uh, thing about maybe potentially bringing in some private alternatives for healthcare. They're, like that's the big, that's the worst thing they can find that she said. I don't know. Um, I think that's scare tactics, and I, I think that was taken out of context too. But well, it, the UCP's come out and said that they're not going to cut healthcare funding. So yeah, I think it's so kind then, of a, like I mean. So then, why do I want to vote? Why? Who do I have to vote for? <laughs> <laughs> Again, no comment. I'm not. I'm, <laughs> that's all right. Now I know. Um, but uh, let's see. Well, I guess the one thing you guys uh, were involved with, though, and uh, the like uh, the Alberta Sovereignty Act. I mean, now, is that still a big part of her um, election campaign or her election promises? Like, or is that, or is that kind of, you know, taking a back seat um, at this point? Well, I think it's one of those things where the act itself is just the way it's designed. Um, it, it is very much a threat to the federal government. It, you, it's it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you don't need to talk about it. But I'll tell you who has been talking about it, and that's the NDP. The NDP has been going off on how much they, you know, they they want to repeal it on Bill 2, I think. And and it's one of those things where if you're trying to convey that you're not a, in the pocket of the federal liberal government, a great way to do that is probably not to repeal one of the fundamental tools that we've passed in the last year that gives us a certain level of defense against federal interference. Um, I It has taken a bit of a backseat. I, I've been talking about uh, these issues, but, and, and you know what, it's been, you know, Rex Murphy's been covering, I've seen a few posts, Calgary Herald was hitting it pretty good uh, on Thursday. So I do think that the relationship between Alberta and Ottawa is very much, it, it may not be talked about on global news at five o'clock, but it's there. It's very much there. People are frustrated uh, with the way that we've been treated. And, and it's, it's just one of those things where, as we move into the next, like, uh, we'll see what the federal government does in June or July, right? I mean, we, we don't know. I mean, we, we're waiting for the Sustainable Jobs Act. Like, is is Notley going to come in and repeal the Sovereignty Act and then the Sustainable jo- and then just step aside when the federal government starts phasing out oil sector jobs? I mean, is that what she's going to do? So I think it, it's very much, the NDP thinks it's an issue that's going to win them votes. I don't think it is. I think... I think it's, I think, uh, yeah, I just, I think it's a foolish thing for the NDP to be pushing for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, I haven't followed closely, but whatever their criticisms are, are, I mean, it seems to me like it's probably the, that's probably the single best thing uh, that I've seen. Well, they say, they say it's going to bring instability in. I'd argue that federal government policies like the impact assessment act, like the tanker ban, like the moving environmental goalposts on every single project have done more to damage investor confidence in this province than the Sovereignty Act has. And in fact, the, the economic activity in this province over the last seven months since the or six months since the passing of the Sovereignty Act has, has, has increased. So like, how can you argue that it brings in economic chaos when the clear evidence is that it doesn't? I mean, I, I think it was, uh, I might be wrong on who this was, but I think it was Alex Porboy at uh, Synovus that said, the Sovereignty Act is not on our radar when it comes to making investment decisions. But I'll tell you what is. The Impact Assessment Act is, the tanker ban is, net zero 2035 electricity grid is. You've got all of these different policies that the federal government are going to bring in that are going to drive business costs up. And then you've got the NDP uh 
essentially wanting to raise big business tax by 38%. That's going to drive business away too. So yeah, I think it's a little bit ironic for the NDP to be criticizing the Sovereignty Act as as causing economic chaos when it doesn't. It hasn't. And their policies and the federal government policies that brought in under while they did nothing are causing much more uncertainty in in Alberta's economy than anything than the Sovereignty Act itself. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Very, very nicely said. Far more politically correct than I might have. I might have said it. Uh, Practice. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Okay. So let's talk about a few more things. As far as um, you you mentioned earlier that a few other things you guys were talking about in the Can't Stop Alberta tour were uh, crime and education. So let's talk about crime first. What was, what was uh, the, uh, the conversation around crime during your Can't Stop Alberta tour? I think the underlying feature of a lot of the crime in Alberta, at least, is poverty. I mean, if you if you're in a in an environment where it's it, you have rising costs that are eating up your bottom line, it's going to hit the people whose bottom lines are tighter, whose budgets are tighter than than it is anywhere else, and and that leads to homelessness and that leads to crime. But I mean, a lot of the conversation uh, revolved around you know the defund the police and and the impact that, that had on the policing situation where crime is able to get out of control uh, a lot of it uh, uh, as well on rural crime and we for the last eight years we've seen an uptick in rural crime um to the point that it became almost an emergency in 2000 and uh, in the ndp's first uh tour in office and and we we did it, it was a really good conversation with a lot of people my focus was very much on affordability but it does have downstream impacts absolutely it does and it, it more people are on the streets because they can't afford to keep a roof over their heads and as prices go up it's 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 going to continue that way i think i saw i i heard a stat today i don't know where i saw it but i think it's something along the lines of like a, a one bedroom one bathroom rental suite in calgary right now is 1600 bucks where you know two years ago it was 1200 so we're at the point now where we're seeing these these the, the increasing interest rates, the increasing uh, cost on everything, are really driving home uh, the an affordability crisis that's putting people on the streets, and then and then and then they you know when you get into desperate situations, you resort to crime, and and I think that's really the the key the key takeaway that I had at least from the tour, and and I, I think others as well. Yeah, so at uh, the Capitalism and Morality event, we had you scheduled to be on our panel, which was intended to be on um, strategy. We, and we named it after the great uh, Harry Brown book called uh, How to Live Free in an Unfree World. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we wanted some ideas around politics uh, and and also just how to, how to um, incorporate you know, these ideas of freedom in, in your, in your life and how to minimize the impact that, uh, the federal or even provincial governments have on your life. First of all, from a, from a strategic perspective, I mean, give us your thoughts on, you know, being politically involved, like what people can do. I guess, um, yeah, my, my thoughts on this are are maybe a little bit biased in the sense this is, you know, what I do. Uh, I think that, you know, Good information that's well written and, and and well researched is is absolutely essential to forming opinions. And so, if you read and you read good quality information that is not too conspiratorial in nature, um, you can end up with a really, really you know, 
well-versed answer to a lot of questions that people have. And when you're having conversations around, you know, at the bar or around the dinner table or, or at, a, at the kids baseball game, you can, you know, be able to hold your own. You've got information and you've got, you've got the rhetoric, you got the talking points down. But I think uh, really the key to, to longevity and success in, 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 in politics is it's the tone. Um, I've seen so many people come and go where they, they start out hot. They, they kept, they just, they, they're at the right place at the right time. I would say Art Pulowski during COVID would be one. And, and you end up where you, you kind of catch something, but then you don't know what to do with it. And it comes down to your tone. If you're angry and, you know, tem- having a temper tantrum on the steps of the legislature, you're probably not going to be having the influence or the impact that you want to have. If you want to have an impact, you need to be calm. You need to be rational. You need to be measured, academic. And that's how you get influence. It's not by standing on a soapbox and screaming as loud as you can just to get a phone call from the premier, maybe. Right. Like it's, it's about having that level of, of just rationality in, in your communication. Um, I think that's, that's, that's essential. Cause I, I think Derek Fildebrand actually found that out the hard way too. Right. Where <laughs> I, I'm sure was he on your panel? I, I thought I saw him on there. Um, he, he, he did I'm a sure presentation, he, but he wasn't on that. He did panel. Right, yeah. yeah. Cause I mean, he's done it too, where he just gets a little overexcited. And then next thing you know, Oh, well I went too far. Right. And so it's, it is about being measured and calm and rational. Even if you watch Corey Morgan, and, and this is one thing I love about it is he goes on rants, right? I mean, that's the big thing, uh, that he does, but he's, he even when he's ranting seems relatively calm. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that is, that's really the, the key difference between people that come and go and they, they maybe get their 15 minutes of fame and the people that have true longevity and are able to, to move the window as we like to say of what is politically possible, just by the way that you're communicating and the way that you're, you're, you're backing your thoughts up with, with facts and data and logic. And if you can do that, you can have a tremendous impact on political thought in, in whatever circle that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Um, and any thoughts, like, I guess part of our conversation also, we talked a bit about, uh, agorism and of course, because Sam Conkin, um, an Albertan philosopher. I, I'm not sure if you'd be familiar with him. Uh, the, the founder of agorist theory, uh, uh, which emphasizes the importance of, you know, black markets and gray markets and, and doing things outside of the state. But he, he was an that Albertan, which is interesting and very influential. Like in, um, he's got whole streams of libertarian thought devoted to his, his theories and stuff, right? So. Doesn't surprise me that he's Albertan. I mean, yeah. libertarianism is it, it is a political philosophy in this province, uh, and I don't know, like whether it's you know due to the migration patterns in our early uh, days, where uh, like places like Quebec and Ontario were were, were uh, largely populated by you know English or French uh, natives um, from England and France, not. It's just native speakers. Yeah. Um, whereas Alberta was at the beginning largely populated by people that were escaping um, these types of regimes that were, you know, d- designed around control. Um, and when you, you, you see that, in, and even like uh, the early, early days, uh, it was American settlers coming up from North Dakota seeking a better opportunity. But the, f- but the major federal government was, you know, 
a six, seven, or like a long train ride away. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. So they were kind of fending by themselves and they were having to be entrepreneurial and they were having to, to take care of themselves. And I think that, that cultural, this, the, the early development of the province of Alberta has created this, this, uh, real libertarian culture amongst the people where yeah, we, you go down to Southern Alberta, like coots and places like that. Those guys hate the government. They hate them more than like, just, and I know, like, I, I don't have much of a problem with that because I'm not a big fan of the government either. I don't think the government could take care of us, but I, it is that, it is that cultural thing where you have a province that is very much, had to fend for itself and, and even had to defend itself against the federal government. When we formed it, it was a province in 1905. Every other province, well, outside of Saskatchewan, but every other province in the country had their control of their natural resources. That's something we didn't get for 26, 27 years. I think it was 19 or maybe it was 1932 or something like that, that John Brownlee headed off to Ottawa to, to get us our natural resources in the middle of a depression. And had we maybe had control of our natural resources going into that, that may have blunted a lot of the depths of the depression. So at the end of the day, we we haven't been treated equally by the federal government. We've been almost treated as a colony um, where we mine our natural resources and send the money east to pay for either industry or uh, at nowadays your lavish social programs. I mean, they've got... I think it's free health or ten dollar a day healthcare in in Quebec that Alberta's taxpayers are paying for. So we have very much this antagonistic relationship with the government, and I think that's something that I don't think it'll ever change. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I I agree with you there. Um, yeah, as far as far as it ever changing, I mean, the you know de- decentralization that was another big topic over the weekend, right? Um, yeah, and obviously you you talk about that a lot too, right? Um, and yep. you know that's really the only viable answer to that. Yeah, that antagonism um, that that runs both ways, really. I mean, when when you hear yep. Al- when Albertans complain about Ottawa for something, and then everyone in Ottawa says well you know we don't we don't think about you at all and uh that's exactly our point yeah. right <laughs> like it's not it's not the people in Toronto hate people in Calgary yeah i mean you might be able to say that about people from Calgary not liking people from Toronto but they just don't know who it like they just yeah, where's Calgary right like i mean <laughs> yeah. it's it is one of those things where yeah there is a, a certain degree of of antagonism there um and what was the second part of your question sorry well the the yeah the second when I, when we mentioned Konkin, the second part of my question was like what you know outside of politics what what kind of things can people do to um alleviate the the impact that this this federal government or the provincial government or the state in general has on their lives i don't think there's really anything you can do other than to get involved right i mean like that's really change only happens when people get up and do something about it. And I, but I think it's important that we have the tools to be able to do that. If you look at, at the left and, and the way that they've uh, formed their political ideology over the years, they have had thousands, like hundreds of, of, of think tanks that are putting out different studies. I mean, any, any issue that they advocate for, they can pull six studies done by six think tanks. We haven't really been following that model. Um, and so there's a lot of, like, I think it's just 
try not to be apathetic and get involved. If if it's an issue that you you want to see change for, show up at show up at events. Um, learn uh, what you need to learn in order to be able to speak as somewhat of an authority. I mean, I don't consider myself to be too big of an authority, but I mean, I know my stuff, right? So I think that's really what it comes down to. Because I get sick and tired of you know some of these more. Oh, well, the radical conspiracy theories that float around and then someone or someone that can't par- properly articulate a an issue or a concept that we're trying to push um you, you get frustrated with that because it does like it we make fun we we complain about communists and the ndp well you know we got to be careful on our own end too we got to be careful not to have the unforced errors on the campaign trail and things like that just kind of you know try and Try and stay calm, stay measured. Like the World Economic Forum is probably not the best thing, but I don't think it's controlling every aspect of our lives. I think that's a little bit extreme to say. It is concerning some of the ideas that come out of there, and they're philosophically wrong. They're not going to work. And I think that's really the saving grace is just how you know fundamentally flawed these ideas are. Um, but it's just little things like that where you, where you get a lot of it in your inbox. It's like, I understand that, but I don't think we're lizard people. You know what I mean? Like, so you kind of have to, you kind of have to take the good with the bad. Uh, so just, yeah, just try and do your research. And, and the big thing too is, yeah, I mean, it, it is, it can be emotionally charged, but uh, one of the things that I've spent years working on is just maintaining composure. Um, if you can maintain your composure, um, you're pretty well good to go. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, and that is another thing that came up over the weekend too was, um, you know, a, a understanding, a, a good understanding of sound economics, Austrian economics, how how that contributes to your understanding of, um, of you know, government, the incentives that individuals have in place, and how that alleviates these ideas, these conspiratorial ideas, right? Yeah, and I I genuinely think these ideas are the way forward, and I think more people are starting to realize that. I, at the end of the day, it's getting to the point where it is impacting people's pocketbooks worse than it ever has. These policies that they're bringing in to shut down oil and gas to 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 build back better but more expensive, like that's not going to work, and and voters are going to reject that. Um, I I I truly believe that. I think we're going to see that in Alberta this week. Uh, next week and uh i think uh, it looks like the federal like the federal liberals are in a little bit of trouble right now and i think it is due to this and and back on decentralization my thought came back to me actually um the concept of decentralization i think is is the key and and i think it's the key simply because the federal government over the last eight years has dramatically expanded its influence and its centralized power to the point that it's not just Alberta and Saskatchewan speaking out anymore. You have British Columbia talking about, um, you know, healthcare transfers and condition and unconditional trans healthcare transfers. Um, you have Quebec, uh, Quebec MNAs swearing to, uh, or refusing to swear allegiance to the throne, even though it says you have to in the constitution. You've got the Quebec government passing laws that are literally unconstitutional and the federal government is not doing anything about it. Uh, the issue is that as the federal government has centralized power, more provinces are finding themselves helpless in dealing with pro- problems that they have to deal with because the federal government's usurped their jurisdiction. So we're starting to see like Ontario's liberalized use of the notwithstanding clause to deal with um, against the wishes of the prime minister to deal with some some internal issues there. So 
I think the key to this is just decentralizing federal power. I think it's just giving provinces more control, giving power back to the people, local local control over problems and 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 that's kind of the way it was, especially out in Alberta for for generations. I mean, we didn't have we couldn't rely on the government because the government was in Ottawa and we were in Alberta. And I think that we've done really well as a province in that because we do have the creativity and the entrepreneur skill, entrepreneurship, and and we do have a very independent-minded society. And I think it really comes down, and I think that's really why uh, decentralization is an idea that captures people's minds out here. And it's, but it is starting to bleed into other areas of the countries that may have more paternalistic cultures, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. Very well said. Um, so one last question: Who are the Nazi sympathizers in the UCP? I haven't seen any. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joshua, this was great. Um, thanks a lot for coming on. No, thanks for having me. That was fantastic. I look forward to hearing it. That was Josh Andrus, Executive Director at Project Confederation. You can find them at projectconfederation.ca. The Darcy Drill Podcast is a production of capitalismandmorality.com. And to subscribe, do so on Substack. Substack.